How delightful it is to come together on this Lord's Day morning to appreciate the goodness of God as manifested through those who submit and obey His Word. And we as a family of individuals at the Pippin Congregation have assembled in the way we have this morning. What an encouraging time. What a very moving time it is. Thankful that each of us have the measure of health that we have and we're excited to be able to sing and to pray and to engage in truthful and spiritual worship as commanded in John 4.24. As you probably remember, last Lord's Day morning we began a series of lessons talking about the topic you'll notice on the screen or on the wall to my left. It has to do with withdrawing a fellowship and at least to at least call to our mind some of the conclusions that we reached then. We'll use them as a springboard for much of our efforts or at least our study from the Word of God for the later parts of our lesson this morning. This opening slide is one that brings to your attention some of those things because on that occasion we highlighted the sweet beauty of fellowship as it's described in the pages of the Bible. Understanding that fellowship not only exists with God for those that are His children, but also there is a community, there's fellowship one with another. And that fellowship is so majestically presented in a number of passages that in fact are so encouraging. You and I, as you appreciate that, we did immediately then discover the seriousness attached to that entire theme. That this fellowship as it's presented in the Bible must be very closely watched and never extended beyond the bounds of what would in fact be in harmony with the will of God. For on occasions in both Old and New Testament, there were times God specifically punished some who extended faithful or, or fellowship to those places to where it should not have been extended. In fact, as you and I studied that, it brought us to four rather quick observations. First, although the withdrawing of fellowship is described in the New Testament. And in fact, it's even commanded, as Matt read for us a moment ago from 2 Thessalonians 3.6. On the whole, it's still an infrequent thing, isn't it? Probably most of us have rarely, if ever, seen a congregation, in fact, go through with and consider this withdrawing of fellowship. That doesn't change what God said about it. Secondly, we found that it was a painful exercise. It's not any fun. When a brother or sister has gone astray and they refuse to change and refuse to repent, it brings tears of sadness. Discipline is not fun. Thirdly, we notice, however, without it, what a sad state of affairs. Any parent could well tell you, if they're wise, what happens to a child if there's never any discipline? The child doesn't appreciate that which is most needful for being the right citizen and being the right person in harmony with God's will. Finally, the Bible lists several sins of which it would be entirely appropriate. Those are listed in 1 first, first Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 10, and also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As we looked at all of that, it laid a foundation, a groundwork, if you please, for our continuation of that subject today. There probably are a number of questions that any of us could quickly consider asking as it relates to this subject. I've tried to use the words of the Bible to provide answers to these, and we're just going to look at them point by point on some of these next slides. As we begin, why don't we do it like this? Maybe there is a fair amount of misunderstanding as it relates to what's involved in this matter of withdrawing fellowship. 
What is it that ultimately takes place when a congregation makes that determination to withdraw its fellowship from an individual? Well, here, as we build some appreciation of that, the opening comments, just a quick reminder of that which we saw last Lord's Day morning. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, describe a bountiful existence of fellowship. First and foremost, those who are saved enjoy fellowship with God. They are able to walk in the sunlit beauty of His preciousness and in harmony with His grace every moment of the day. They understand that they're saved. And no matter what comes their way in life, they understand that nothing can sever that relationship with the Heavenly Father. That is an amazing kind of life to lead. You and I know so well the blessing that comes with it. The peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard or keep your hearts and minds through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4 verse 7. But almost immediately then, in light of that we could ask, aren't we all sinners? Aren't all of us guilty of sin? And so if we disfellowship or withdraw fellowship from those that are sinners, shouldn't we withdraw from everybody that's here? If that's the way we think, we're missing the point of what the disfellowshipping matter is all about. Certainly, we'd all well agree that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're told that explicitly in Romans 3.23. Later on, John even hammered it more thoroughly by saying, One who says he has no sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 1 verse 8. So we're not by any means saying that the rest or others are perfect in the sense of being sinless. That brings us to note this. The withdrawing of fellowship is not to one who is guilty of sin. It's one who won't repent of sin. Again, all of us have to face trials, temptations, and stumble and fall into sin. But we must rush back to the Master's side. We must, in fact, repent of that and confess that matter to the Master. And He's promised to forgive it. You don't withdraw from a one like that. But to that person who's living in sin and who does not repent, has no interest in it, has not shown any movement in that direction and continues to live in that way persistently and deliberately in sin, that's the one from whom you must withdraw. The issue, as it's described in those ways, you'll notice at the bottom, brings us to tie that back to the opening statement we made. One who is saved enjoys an amazing fellowship with God. One who is deliberately living in sin is not saved. That person is lost, although once a faithful Christian, no longer is that the case. That person has forfeited his or her salvation. And if they continue on that course... They're going to end up eternally lost in hell. You'll notice then, second to the last statement, the individual is lost prior to the church withdrawing from that person, and he or she is lost after it. The church withdrawing fellowship doesn't at that moment make the person lost. He or she's already lost. They're already living apart from God. They're already such that they don't enjoy the fellowship with the Almighty God of heaven. With that said, the New Testament writers use an interesting word to describe all of this. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6, you may notice on that occasion as Paul referred to that circumstance in which the Corinthian congregation withdrew its fellowship, he said it was a punishment exacted by the congregation 
under authority, of course, of God. It's called a punishment. We noticed earlier as we studied this matter of discipline, it's not a fun exercise. In fact, it's painful. It's a punishment. What's the hope of it? What's the motivation for doing it? If it's painful, if it's not an enjoyable exercise, let's let the Word of God tell us. Why would you withdraw from somebody? Why would it ever be carried out? The Bible gives two reasons. In 1 Corinthians 5, I would ask you to notice what they are. The fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. In order to at least highlight some of the features developed in that chapter, you and I might remember that the congregation in Corinth faced the situation that called for them to withdraw fellowship. What was it? We won't read the entirety of that chapter, but there was a person, a gentleman, in that congregation who was living in fornication. Sexual immorality was descriptive of his lifestyle. In light of that, Paul gave orders to that congregation, very explicit orders. Those orders included disfellowship, but along the way he gave reasons as to why the church ought to do this. May I ask you to notice, beginning in verse number 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Reason that's first given. Why you would disfellowship someone, verse 5 is, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. By withdrawing fellowship, you can't make the person repent. No human being can make anybody else repent. It's just not possible. But what we can do is emphasize and impress and sufficiently make careful the statement of how serious the decisions being made are, that hopefully the person will come to his or her senses, recognize what has been forfeited in terms of the salvation once enjoyed, and will at once strive to move back in the direction of faithfulness. Look again at the statements of verse 5. Deliver such an one unto Satan. Remember, the person's already lost by the fact then that you're delivering such an one to Satan. You're making a public statement. We don't approve of this lifestyle. He may once or she may once have been in fellowship with God and with this congregation. However, by the choices this person has made, by the directions this person has chosen, we don't condone it. And the God of heaven has authorized this as a last effort on our part to try and reach this person so that he or she will make appropriate changes in repentance. And ultimately on the day of judgment, of course, will by that time in faithfulness enjoy salvation. The first reason, this person's lost. And you notice, for their salvation, disfellowship them. It's for their good. Reason number two, if you read further, you'll notice verse 7 lists a second reason as to why this is so vital. It says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, even as you're leavened. And Paul has immediately preceded that with this unforgettable statement of verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It is still a significant thing to appreciate 
that the blessed church of our Master is a church characterized by purity, a church characterized by thoroughness and wholeness in light of that on which it's based and that which it strives to uphold. In Ephesians 5.27, we read so carefully on that occasion that in the way it's designed, in the way it was founded, and in the way in which it was brought into its existence, it has no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Isn't that amazing? Now, the perfection attached to its design and the perfection attached to its ultimate and basic nature leads us to appreciate this. If there's someone living openly in sin, maintained previously some fellowship with the church, but now have, has gone to a point in which that no longer is the case, and that person is known to be living in sin, and they're lost, the church can't uphold that can't give its endorsement, if you please, to that kind of lifestyle. Can you imagine Jesus, how He would react if He were able to stand here in the flesh? You can see tears streaming down His face as He looks with such love upon the one who's made that decision. You could almost hear Paul then as he tells that congregation in Corinth, Your glorying is not good. You haven't exhibited love to this one if you haven't withdrawn your fellowship from Him. You've got to try to wake him up. Two reasons. To try and save his soul. And you've got to protect the purity of the church. You'll notice that final thing that I would ask you to notice in that particular point. Is this appears in the word of God to be the final act to which a church can turn its attention in the hope of reaching this one. There's nothing else the church can do. Point number three. So far as we've looked at those things, now we might ask this one. So suppose a church does disfellowship somebody. What does that person have to do then in order to again be right? What does that individual have to do in order to be in fellowship with God? The answer is simple. He's got to do the same thing after he's been disfellowshipped as he would have had to do before he was disfellowshipped. It's exactly the same thing. Particularly it's this, God demands repentance. That's what so far He's refused to do. That's what God demands. Men may like to compromise. God doesn't. In Acts 17, beginning in verse 30, we read this statement reminding us about the insistence and the importance of repentance. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Who is that? He said, everybody. Why? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to all men. Who? He said all men. In that he hath raised him from the dead. If a man won't repent, he's going to be lost. And the hope is that this individual, after having been withdrawn from, will recognize the urgency and the sadness of the decisions he's made. You'll notice... What he's got to do to be right is just exactly what would have been required of him before he was withdrawn from. He's got to repent and confess those sins. If he'll do that, God will openly welcome him back into fellowship. We listed Acts 17. Look at Luke 13, 3 for a moment. On that occasion, wasn't it Jesus himself who said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Who will perish? He said, Everybody that won't repent. You might also add to that those powerful words. 
in 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 9. It is not the will of God that anybody be lost. He sent His Son that, in fact, everyone might be saved. Everyone has opportunity to appreciate that marvelous grace of God, but not everybody will obey it. Not everybody will repent, sadly. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What this person's got to do, he's got to repent. This individual, man or woman, got to repent and got to confess those matters. And we understand repentance demands a change in life. Whatever the f- former sins were in which he's, he was living or she was living, that's got to change. If it was a life of immorality, that's got to stop. If it was a life known otherwise as things sinful, whatever it was, it has to cease. As you and I close that slide, how sweet it is to hear then those words of James 5.16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If a person's withdrawn from, and then that person upon careful deliberation and realization of what happens comes before an organization like this church comes before the very ones who withdrew their fellowship from him and says, I've sinned and I want to make it right. That congregation in love will openly accept him back again upon his confession and repentance because that's all God demands. The next point would be this one. You and I might ask, so as a congregation gives careful thought to disfellowshipping one, What are the steps that they ought to go through in order to bring that about? What steps should a congregation proceed through in order to recognize bringing about that which the Bible calls a withdrawing of fellowship? It would appear in light of those statements given to us in Matthew 18 that that kind of idea is exactly the one that Jesus presents for you and me to seriously consider. I would invite you to notice them as I read them in our hearing. In Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, from the lips of Jesus, this is what he had to say. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church." But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, There am I in the midst of them. Let me quickly say that that particular passage began by asserting if a brother trespasses against you. And so we have been given explicit instructions how to deal with someone who has offended me personally. May I say, are there principles found in that, however, that appear to be extraordinarily useful as it relates to a congregation withdrawing? 
let's try to put it together perhaps like this. Remember, if an individual has walked astray, no longer living in harmony with God, choosing in fact to live a life of sinfulness, as a loving group of brothers and sisters, what should the church of which he's a member do? Well, surely they would reach out to him first on a rather personal basis. Do you realize the choices you're making? Please don't do this. Would you please listen to this verse as we read it? God condemns this what you're doing. Surely one would go and talk to this one, urging him in great love and seriousness to think very urgently about the nature of the choices he or she is making. Did you notice what was said? If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If that individual at that point says, Thank you for coming to talk to me. You've waked me up. I thank you for reading those verses. You know what? I want to be made right. Would you pray to God for me? If that person were to respond like that, you've gained him. He's back in fellowship with God. And if it needs to be announced publicly, that could be done. What happens if he won't listen? What happens if this person continues, in fact, in this lifestyle apart from fellowship with God? Well, the text said, take, take a witness or two with you. Take another individual who loves him, of course, and who would be able to share the concern and care. Your soul is lost. Don't you know that? Don't you know that if you die, you're going to hell like this? Jesus, one more time, said, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he again says, please pray to God for me, I now realize what you've said. Those verses have touched my heart. Jesus died for me and I don't want to live like this. One more time though, you notice, what if he still doesn't listen? What if he still in adamant refusal and rebellion to the things of God continues in this lifestyle of disfellowship with God himself? Third thing Jesus said, bring it to the church. You and I can see the wisdom of that. Here, a couple of individuals have approached him, maybe several times, hoping and praying that he will change. But to this point, he hasn't. Bring it to the church, Jesus said. You'll notice there is obviously great strength in number. That person at one point was a member of that congregation, faithfully accepted and welcomed, encouraged and compelled along the way of goodness if that whole congregation now is made aware of his sinful lifestyle, made aware of the choices, sad and tragic ones he's made, it gives the opportunity for the congregation to in fact apply some serious pressure as they admonish him and warn him and rebuke him, hoping again that he'll change his way and change his mind. I've tried to list it like this. When you and I think about bringing it to the church, which is what Jesus said, remember it's not done as a gossiping campaign. It's done because that church loves that man or that woman's soul. They love this one. They're saddened so much that he's lost. And Jesus gives one final opportunity, one set of instructions whereby bring it to the church. Now might we say, what if he hears the church? What if after some period of time, members of the church, as they talk to him, admonish him, rebuke this person? Suppose he hears the church. He comes with virtual tears in his face before that congregation and says, 
I am so sorry for my sin. I've brought disgrace upon you. I've brought disgrace upon Christ. I've brought disgrace on the very thing for which He saved me. And I don't want to live like this anymore. That person, upon confession and repentance, would be welcomed with open arms back into fellowship with God, and that church would do the same. What about this? What if he doesn't hear the church? What if he continues in adamant refusal and rebellion to the things of God? Jesus listed one final thing. You noticed it said, Let him be as a heathen, as a heathen and a publican. That's the Lord's way, apparently, of describing the withdrawal of fellowship. One final thing. There's been a period of time in which the church made approaches to this one, striving to urge him to think and to change. But to this point, he hasn't. To this point, she hasn't. To this point, there's been no sign of repentance, no sign of change. He's continuing to be lost and seems to be content in it. The church cannot endorse it. Let him be unto thee as a heathen and a publican. Withdraw your fellowship from him. Now might we say, as we've said the other times, that withdrawing a fellowship might reach this person. Maybe this final straw would be enough to have him or her recognize the enormity of sin and the magnitude of being lost. Hopefully that's what will happen. But might we say, it may not. The person may just continue to live in sin. Satan may have that person so engulfed in his clutches that he just doesn't repent even upon the withdrawal of the church's fellowship. That doesn't change the fact Jesus said it must be done. There may come a time he'll come to his senses. Just like the prodigal son, he might come to himself, Luke 15, 24. He might. As we close that slide, there are more questions we probably would want to ask. Let's look at this one. How long should a church wait before this procedure would be followed? How long should a congregation wait? You'll notice several steps have been listed and surely some amount of time is involved. An individual goes and tries to talk to the person. Maybe a little later another individual goes and then some witnesses go and then it's brought before the church. How much time should elapse? I believe we must be a bit cautious as we think about this one. The fact is the Bible does not spell out a timetable for us. Either here in 1 Corinthians, either in Matthew 18, either in 2 Thessalonians 3. There doesn't seem to be any set time. You don't wait 61 days. You don't do this after seven weeks and two days. However, there does seem to be some thoughts that we could at least mention. In Revelation 2.21, there is a reference on that occasion to one of the seven churches of Asia. It was the church at Thyatira. That church had become rather wicked in the sense that they once had known faithfulness, but they had slipped from it. And one of the main problems was there was a woman in that congregation who was likened unto Jezebel. She encouraged immorality. She encouraged, in fact, faithlessness in regard to God. And God makes an interesting statement. He said, I gave her space to repent. We don't know how much time God gave her, but there was some amount of time that the God of heaven had given. 
may we say, surely any eldership, as they seriously consider withdrawing a fellowship, would be very mindful of basically turning over every potential stone to try and reach this person. But there comes a time when space has elapsed and the person hasn't reacted and responded positively to anything and they're lost. There comes a time when just like it was with God, the space had run out. Well, so too it is with this disfellowshipping. I would ask you to notice, even though the Bible doesn't say a specific timetable, it nonetheless does say that after some appropriate amount of time, the church is entirely within its right to pursue this matter, isn't it? I would ask you in light of that, then, what about the additional details? Who does this? Since it is the case in Hebrews 13, 17, that we obey our elders, it certainly seems as if, since they have the oversight of the local congregation, they would take the lead in carrying out this disfellowship. They would be the ones to initiate these proceedings and then the church in dutiful submission would follow their lead. Isn't it interesting then with that in mind? We notice in 1 Peter 5 beginning in verse 1 that as the elders are described on that occasion, they have the oversight of that local flock. They are described as the local shepherds, if you please. Isn't that an interesting picture? Here is a lamb that's gone astray. A sheep who has chosen to walk away. In Luke 15, we notice on that occasion, 99 were left behind while the one was sought. The elders have reached the point, they've tried everything, nothing has worked. God says, after the appropriate space, you've got to disfellowship. And they take the lead in making that announcement. And they, in fact, are the ones who set the example of what we do in love. You'll notice the very last thing. It would seem then that for the benefit of the congregation, there should be clear communication. Remember, Jesus said bring it to the church. It's not brought to some subset of the church. It's not brought to just a selected few. It's important the entirety of that congregation be thoroughly knowledgeable of what has happened and why. Because after all, it would be easy for misunderstanding and misinformation to soon rear its ugly head and people be divisive about it. It needs to be a unified whole. This one, for his own good, has got to be disfellowshipped. Or this person, she, has got to be disfellowshipped because she's lost like this. That church has got to be unified in its pursuit of trying to reach her or him, as the Bible describes it. As we close that slide, our discussion so far has brought us through a number of these particular topics. There are two final practicalities. I call them that simply because it appears the Word of God addresses them in ways that remind us of those terms. First of all, if a church then disfellowships someone, how should I treat this person? This man, this woman that has been disfellowshipped, what should I do as a Christian, a member of that congregation? How do I do this? On at least two occasions, the New Testament uses this explicit phrase, and I've put it in quotation marks, not to keep company. I believe we better be a bit careful about that. For some, in certain situations, that could be extremely difficult. 
What if there's a husband and a wife? The husband has acted in ways the church has withdrawn from him, but not from her. But she's got to live with this man. She is his wife. But yet the Bible says in some way, can't keep company with him. How would that be done? It seems from Paul's reference in that particular passage, again, 1 Corinthians 5, he has something very special in mind. Let me try to develop that if I might. It seems to focus the spotlight upon a, a social consideration. That is to say, those matters that would rest beyond duties and obligations otherwise presented in the Word of God. Perhaps an example would be an order. Suppose there are two men in a congregation, and one of them has acted, conducted himself in a way unbecoming of Christianity. He's guilty of sins. He has so far chosen to never repent. Ultimately, the church, under the leadership of its elders, withdraws fellowship from him. However, he and this other gentleman, also another Christian in that congregation, were very good friends. They watched ball games together. They went hunting together. The time comes the church withdraws fellowship from one of them. A Saturday morning comes and the one withdrawn from says, Let's go hunting today. The other one says, I would like nothing better than to go hunting with you. But you've been withdrawn from. I cannot go hunting with you today. Now, if you'll repent, next Saturday will be the first thing I want to do to with you. But the fact is, I can't extend a hand of fellowship as if I encourage and endorse this lifestyle you've chosen. Again, this social consideration just cannot be sustained in that way, it would seem. You'll also notice on another occasion, another word is used in Romans 16, 17. Avoid them. Now you and I know that there may be times, just like the husband with a wife, can't absolutely avoid being where he is. But you can avoid endorsing what he's done. You could avoid, in fact, not supporting or encouraging the lifestyle he's chosen. Maybe it is in finality. In 2 Thessalonians 3.15, the key word, it seems, that describes the overall thrust that every person in that congregation must adopt with regard to the disfellowshipped person is admonish. That person I mentioned a moment ago, Instead of going hunting with him, he says, I'd like to study the Bible with you. That's more important than hunting. Could I help you understand why what you've done is so dangerous? Could I help you understand why this is so tragic the church has withdrawn from you? I'd much rather study the Bible with you this Saturday morning. Constantly bringing before this person the reality of what he's done. Constantly inserting in his life the characteristic of the seriousness of it. Admonish seems to be the key idea. Maybe it is in light of all of that. Paul was very specific, though, in telling that Thessalonian congregation, even when you withdraw from him, he's not your enemy. It might be easy to build walls in such a way you almost develop a strong disregard for, a strong element of dislike for. Paul says that's not right either. He's chosen to live in sin, and even though you've withdrawn from him, you've still got to love him. Now, that love doesn't lead you to fellowshipping. It doesn't lead you, in fact, to pretend he's not in sin. 
But it does lead you to say this. You need to urge him to repent. And you do that as a person who still loves his soul. He is an immortal spirit. She is an immortal spirit. And you don't want them lost. Not an enemy. That very phrase is found in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 15. Would it not be fair then to say at this point, out of that motivation of love, this person who has been disfellowshipped, if he then at some later time comes down that aisle and says, I do not want to live like this. I want to again enjoy the fellowship that I had with you and with God. That church would burst forth virtually in tears, welcoming that person back. A prayer would be led to God for that person's forgiveness. A prayer, in fact, would be uttered, making confession of those things as the person does that. That's what that church wants to happen. The church doesn't want to see him lost. The church wants him to ultimately make proper repentance. We've studied for two Sundays this matter of withdrawing fellowship. Although the Bible has all these things to say about it, I've tried to just summarize many of the points on this one final summary slide. As we've looked at them one by one today, we've been impressed, I think, with what the Bible has to say about all of this. Why do you disfellowship? Two reasons. Because that person's lost and you want to try to reach them. And secondly, you've got to protect the purity of the church. You don't want others, in fact, to begin to think that that's not serious. That cannot be tolerated. Because of all of that, we've learned some steps that a congregation would follow as it carries out this fellowship. And we finally studied that characteristic of what you do as you love this individual. Let me say that as we draw this brief series of lessons to a close... Our study of this has brought before our minds a number of verses. Maybe we've read them so many times but never seen them in quite the same light. I trust we've been motivated and compelled, encouraged in a rather dramatic fashion. This congregation at the Pippin Church of Christ, we want it to be known ultimately for the very thing spoken of in the New Testament. Could we not say it like this? Maybe as we close our lesson. If a member of this congregation begins to walk away from the Lord, begins to live in ways that make that person lost, we as a family want to do what we can to save them, to reach them. We don't want to just let them walk off and be lost without doing anything. That's what a loving family does. A physical family does that. If one member of that family begins to act in a hurtful way, the others will surround that one with love, maybe discipline, but try to reach the one. That's what the New Testament church tries to do as well. In fact, isn't that a loving group to do that? You love me enough to where if you see something about my life that will cause me to be lost on the day of judgment, you love me enough not to let me stay that way, but you try to reach me. Encourage me, warn me, rebuke me. If I have no intent to listen, you finally withdraw from me. Today, we're going to stand in a moment singing this song of encouragement. If there be anybody in this audience that is not a faithful child of God, maybe you have never become a Christian, and if, if you haven't, may I say, don't you want to be a member of a family that will love you enough? that will not let you just walk away and be lost without trying to salvage or reach you.
the gospel plan of salvation, believe in Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. Confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, Romans 10, verse 10, and be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts twenty two sixteen. If we could assist you today in doing that, what a joyful day it'd be. If you have known the faithful walk of Christianity but have walked away from it, for whatever the reason, realize the devil is smiling, but you could quickly turn it to a frown if you'll come down this aisle. He wants you right where you are, lost. Jesus wants you to be saved. If you've got that public sin in your life, why not confess it, repent of it, let us pray to God for you? We'd be delighted to do it. If we could help you today in either of these ways, don't stay where you are, but why not let us do it and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.